I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. We're thrilled to produce this episode of We the People in partnership with Balladopedia, the digital encyclopedia of American politics and elections. Ballotpedia shares objective, neutral information that informs millions of voters and candidates, and we are excited that they're here to join our nonpartisan exploration of the text and history of the election clause of the Constitution and some of the leading court cases that are bubbling up in America. From Ballotpedia, we're thrilled to have joining us Sarah Rosier. Sarah is Ballotpedia's news editor. She's been at Ballotpedia since 2013 and has served as director of the Congress Project and covered everything from presidential elections to the federal courts. Sarah, thank you so much for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. And Sarah is joined by the co-authors of our interactive constitution explainer on the elections clause, Michael Morley and Fernita Tolson. And dear listeners, just as Franklin Roosevelt asked the American people to take out their maps during the radio show, I want you to take out the interactive constitution explainer on the elections clause so you can explore Michael and Fernita's areas of agreement and disagreement. Michael Morley is assistant professor at Florida State University College of Law where he specializes in constitutional law and election law, and he's the author of many publications, including Prophylactic Redistricting, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and the new Equal Protection Right to Vote. Michael, thank you so much for joining. Thank you very much for having me. And Fernita Tolson is professor at USC's Gould School of Law, where her scholarship and teaching focus on election law and constitutional law. She was previously the Betty T. Ferguson Professor of Voting Rights at Florida State University College of Law. Her forthcoming book, A Promise Unfulfilled, Section 2 of the 14th Amendment and the Future of the Right to Vote, will be published in 2019 by Cambridge University Press. Fernita, congratulations on the book and glad to have you with us. Thank you. I'm really delighted to be here. Wonderful. All right, let's jump right in. Michael, describe, if you will, what you and Fernita agreed was the core original meaning of the Elections Clause. Well, the Elections Clause is the constitutional provision that confers power to regulate the the congressional election process. And the, the clause primarily empowers state legislatures to enact what the Supreme Court has called a complete code for the regulation of federal elections. So under this grant of power from the elections clause, state legislatures are allowed to pass voter registration laws, uh, determine how to assign polling places, a regu- uh, determine how what the canvassing rules will be, what the ballot counting rules will be, all of the various aspects that go into conducting a congressional election. The elections clause says state legislatures have the power to do that. However, Congress gets to make or alter such rules. So if Congress either disagrees with uh, laws that certain legislatures have passed, or even if legislatures haven't regulated on on a particular issue at all, Congress is free to step in and enact its own federal statutes to address uh, particular particular aspects of the the congressional election process. I, I think the most remarkable thing about the clause is that it shows structurally, and in fact, it's one of multiple constitutional provisions that structurally empower the political branches, right? Elected state legislatures, elected chambers of Congress to regulate congressional elections. Thank you so much for that. Fernita, 
you note with Michael in your common explainer uh, about some important cases where the court has held that the election clause doesn't permit a state to refuse to print on the ballot the names of candidates who've already served three terms and validating term limits. That's the Thornton case. And you also note that the court doesn't confer the power to regulate congressional elections on the state as a whole, but instead on the legislature of the state. I think you disagree in your separate statements about how broadly the legislature should be interpreted. And you note that in the Arizona state legislature case, the Supreme Court read the legislature broadly enough to encompass the ballot initiative process that Arizona residents use to delegate the legislature's redistricting authority to an independent redistricting commission. Tell us why you think that the Arizona case was correctly decided and legislature should be interpreted broadly as well as any other things you'd like to signal about the elections clause. So I think um, one of the things that Michael mentioned in his excellent opening is the fact that the clause also delegates to Congress uh, the authority to veto state regulations um, with respect to time, place, and manner of uh, federal elections. And so it's, it's my view that as a part of that control, and, and, and in essence, the clause give, gives Congress final policymaking authority when it comes to federal elections, even though states can, in the first instance, um, set the time, place, and manner of federal elections. So with respect to um, the ability of uh, redistricting to take place through ballot initiative, there was actually a, a law in 1911 that uh, Congress passed that, uh, that, that sort of allowed um, states to have broad authority in that area. And because Congress had you know, signed off on it, in essence, and because Congress has final authority under the clause, I thought that, you know, that uh, broad interpretation of legislature was okay, in part because Congress played a role in sort of determining the scope of state power. And because Congress has the final say, um, I thought that the case was correctly decided. Thanks so much for that. Michael, I sense from your comment statement that you disagree on that point and think that the Arizona state legislature case was wrongly decided. Can you tell us why and why you think the court was wrong to ignore the plain meaning of the elections clause? Absolutely. The, the Constitution has many clauses or many phrases, rather, like equal protection of the laws, due process of the laws, where they employ vague language that many people argue point to general principles, point to abstract concepts that, that it's very easy to, to have debates about. The word legislature, which appears in the elections clause, or the elections clause specifically delegates authority not to the state as a whole, but specifically to the legislature of the state, is one of those terms in the Constitution that is very concrete, that is very specific. The term legislature appears at least 10 times throughout the Constitution, and in every other single context where the word legislature appears, it is clear from the context, it is clear from the use, that it is referring to what we would think of as the institutional state legislature, a multi-member body of elected officials that periodically convenes to enact laws. And so the notion that legislature, as used in the elections clause, means something else than it means throughout the entire rest of the Constitution, means something different than it meant in every single state constitution that existed at the time the U.S. Constitution was, was ratified, I think is indefensible. Thank you so much for that. Well, we the people listeners, you now have a sense of the agreement and disagreement about the scope of the word legislature in the elections clause, and I want you to dig in on the cases to learn more for yourself. Sarah, let's now run through the major constitutional voting rights cases that are bubbling up uh, in the lower courts and up to the Supreme Court and then ask our 
dream team of experts to give us the legal arguments on both sides. Um, there are a series of controversies involving voter ID laws, including in North Dakota and elsewhere. Tell us about some of the major ones and help us set up the legal issues there. Yeah, let's talk about North Dakota first. So this has gone back to 2016 when we saw a federal court case tackling the North Dakota voter ID law. Doug Burgum, the governor of North Dakota at the time, has, had reestablished and signed into law another state voter ID requirement, and that, now that's made its way up to the courts. Um, the last we heard was from the Supreme Court. They stayed the law, and that'll go into effect in North Dakota. I'd love to hear from the panelists some, some factoids on, on how rare this North Dakota law is, what this means for the voters. One thing of note is that in North Dakota, it is the only state in which there is no formal formal voter registration system. So while they do have this voter ID, there isn't, like other states, a you have to register by such and such state and prove your uh, proof of residency through the voter registration. There's no sort of system in place for that. So this is kind of a different voter ID case. So, Fernita, I'd love to hear from you first and, and then Michael about your thoughts on this North Dakota voter ID. Yes, that would be great. And, Fernita, you might uh, give us a sense of what the broad constitutional challenges to voter ID laws are and, and what courts are holding on, on both sides of the issue, and then, and then give us a sense of your thoughts of the North Dakota case. Of course. So uh, voter ID laws have been challenged uh, over um, the last few years on a number of grounds. So uh, litigants have challenged them on constitutional grounds as violations of the 14th and 15th Amendments. Um, so the 14th Amendment uh, right to vote, that it burdens the right to vote, and also the 15th Amendment um, in terms of the ban on racial discrimination in voting. Um, they've also been challenged under the Voting Rights Act, and I think litigants have had more uh, success uh, challenging, uh, challenging these laws under that provision. Um, the North Dakota law is interesting because, it, and I mean interesting in a bad way, um, in that it, it requires um, residents to have a, a street address in North Dakota. And the problem with that is that there are quite a few Native Americans who live on reservations where there are no street addresses. And um, the state was well aware of this when they, they passed this law. Uh, but the Supreme Court allowed it to go into effect, um, which is which is also unusual in the sense that the the, the court generally does not permit laws that would change um, change the election rules close to a, an election to to go into effect. And as you know, we're only um, at this point eight days out from the midterms, and um, I think we were maybe a little over a month out when the Supreme Court allowed it to go into effect. And so. Um, the, the effect of this law is to, to disenfranchise a significant portion of Native Americans who don't have street addresses. And because they also don't have uh, the supplemental information that um, they, they will be able to use in order to, um, you know, to, to supplement their ID that doesn't have uh, the street address, they can come forward with, for example, a utility bill or um, a, a check issued by the federal, state, or local government, and so on, in order to further verify their identification. But a lot of them don't even have that. And so the end result is that a significant percentage of Native Americans in North Dakota are, are will be disenfranchised by this law. 
Um, but uh, one thing that gets like, ignored in this conversation is the fact that a significant portion of white people will also be disenfranchised because of this law. So one of the things that the, the district court found here was that um, almost 65,000 uh, non-Native voters don't possess qualifying voter ID under the new law. So I know we typically think about voter ID and how it affects communities of color, um, but it also affects um, white people in North Dakota as well and, and other communities as well. And I think that's worth bringing in to the conversation so that we have an understanding of how um, devastating voter ID can be in certain situations. One thing I also want to point out before I be quiet is that keep in mind that in 2016, which is a presidential election year, only 350,000 people voted in North Dakota. So it's not like it's a state that has a substantial population where um, it could sort of absorb if 2,500 people are disenfranchised. 2,500 people uh, 2,500 Native Americans is uh, a lot because it's a small population. 65,000 non-Native Americans who are affected by this ID is a lot in light of the fact that only 350,000 people voted in 2016. Um, so uh, the effect of, of this law is actually pretty devastating if you think about it in context. Thank you so much for all that. Michael, uh, 33 states have enacted voter ID laws of different kinds. And in 2008, in the Crawford against Marion County election board case, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld an Indiana law requiring voters to provide photographic identification. So tell us about the significance of the Crawford case, how it affects the North Carolina case, and broadly what the legal debate is uh, in these voter ID challenges that are bubbling up across the country for and against. Well, Frenita is absolutely right. The main issues that that you tend to see focus on from a constitutional perspective around whether there was intentional racial discrimination in violation of the 15th Amendment, whether there is a substantial burden in violation of the 14th Amendment, uh, Section 2 issues under the Voting Rights Act. Crawford, in Crawford, the Supreme Court rejected a facial challenge to a voter identification statute. Here, the, the, the North Dakota challenge, the constitutional aspect of it, was brought primarily as a facial challenge because the as the Eighth Circuit held, the individual plaintiffs actually had street addresses. And so the Supreme Court, had, or excuse me, the Eighth Circuit held, they weren't in a position to bring an as-applied challenge. So most of the controversy centered around whether this law was facially valid. And specifically, it's centered around the requirement that the ID has to have a street address on it, that the voter's ID has to have a street address on it rather than simply a P.O. box. And I think that that's where the context matters greatly, that we're talking about a state here that doesn't have voter registration. There are no centralized voter databases to let state officials know. Individual cities, if they wish, are allowed to set up their own, but on a statewide basis, there's no database to, to even let officials know where people are supposed to be registered and what, what their proper precinct is, what slate of local officials they're, they're supposed to be they're supposed to be voting on. And you know, the state legislature, at least according to the according to the Eighth Circuit opinion, considered alternatives like having a map at the 
at the polling place and having each voter try to find on the map exactly where they are and then trying to cross-reference from that what ballot they should get and whether they're, whether they're eligible to vote. And so particularly in the context of not having voter registration records, what the, what the Eighth Circuit wound up suggesting, and apparently the Supreme Court at least to some extent appears to have agreed with, is that there is a legitimate interest here in simply had, even, even putting aside even putting aside fraud concerns, just in it managing the election accurately and managing the election efficiently, having some government document. And I'll emphasize, by the way, it includes tribal IDs, that this isn't a situation where they're trying to engage in ID gerrymandering, so to speak, by by targeting uh, you know, modes of identification or methods of identification that just certain groups are, are able to have. And so even a tribal ID, as long as it has the, the street address, could be valid. And apparently, they, simply by calling the, the county, there's a 911 coordinator in each county, voters who don't have street addresses can actually get them assigned to them ahead of time. And they can, they can get, a, they'll get a letter from the county just saying, use this as your street address. And they can, e they have a choice. They can either use that letter to get an ID with the street address on it, or they can bring that letter along with some other ID that otherwise wouldn't comply with the statute. And that would be, and, and that will satisfy the law. And I, the, the other point that, that, that Fernita raised, right, this isn't a law targeting Native American voters. For every Native American voter, 13 non-Natives, according to the statistics that the, that the Eighth Circuit relied upon, 13 non-Native voters are, are impacted by the law and will have to go through the process of get, uh, getting a street address so that election officials know where they're supposed to be voting from. So it, particularly in this, in this context, I think that this voter ID law, especially given that it, it at least appears that the the street address requirement can be satisfied by making a phone call. I I, I think doesn't really pose serious constitutional questions. Many thanks for that, Sarah. Because voter ID challenges are so important, can you give our listeners a sense of the situation on the ground? How many voter ID challenges are pending? How are courts tending to rule? And we've heard the arguments on both sides. On the one hand, avoiding racial discrimination, uh, both under the 14th and 15th Amendment, on the other, avoiding voter fraud and allowing efficient administration of elections. Are, are courts all over the place, or how are they tending to, roll, uh, to rule on these issues? So we saw quite a few. 34 states now have voter identification requirements. Um, 17 of those, you are required to present photo identification, while the other 17, there are different other accepted non-photo ID requirements for for showing ID. Um, we're seeing we're seeing some cases this year. North Dakota being a very big one. It's attracted the attention of celebrities. I think there was a big concert out on one of the reserves last weekend where Mark Ruffalo and um, I think the Dave Matthews fan were there um, protesting this and, and encouraging the tribes to get out and vote. Um, we are seeing in those 34 states, in 2016, there were the, the big ones. I think it was North Carolina, uh, Texas. We saw those big cases there. Um, I expect that the Supreme Court will, in the next few sittings, take up some of these as they make their way through the courts. But we're, we're seeing some of the precedent kind of trickle down through. Um, 
Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's the context. So we'll be tracking, we have a page called Voter Identification Laws by State, where if you are unsure what is required for you as you go out to vote, either through early voting this week or next Tuesday, we have a full breakdown of what is required for, for your state. So you can get a good sense before you get caught up at the polls. Thanks for that. Frenita, moving forward, how many of these cases do you expect to succeed ultimately before the Supreme Court? And how will the scope of voting in America be changed by the legal challenge or not? Um, I don't expect that there'll be very many successes uh, with respect to challenging voter identification laws. I think that um, the current lineup of the court will not be um, sympathetic to empirical evidence showing that these laws have a disproportionate impact on people of color. Um, and also that there are uh, people who uh, votes are impacted who may not be a part of a minor, minority group. Um, I didn't mean to suggest that, you know, if it if it affects more people, then that means that um, the state didn't seek to single out a particular group. I think the fact that um, it affects more people is also problematic. Uh, but I don't think that the the court will be sympathetic to that because they think that the state's interest um, in, you know, preventing voter fraud, even if there's no empirical evidence that um, the law necessarily is, you know, designed to address fraud. Um, I, I, this is about being def- deferential to the state in a way that um, is, it, it unfortunately has a negative impact on the scope of voting rights. Thank you for that. Michael, uh, with the addition of Justice Kavanaugh to the court, can you imagine any challenges to voter ID laws succeeding? And if not, what would the court's reasoning rejecting the challenges look like? Absolutely. Under under <clears throat> current doctrine, if a voter ID law is adopted with a racially discriminatory purpose, then that is a flat violation of the 15th Amendment and the, 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 the court would strike it down. And I, and I certainly don't see any narrowing of 15th Amendment protections or, or, or any change in the approach to that doctrine. And I also think that as more of these uh, laws are enacted, as there's more as there's more litigation, we get a we're going to see most of the litigation, in my in in my opinion, most likely tending to focus on as applied challenges, as well as as Frenita had mentioned before, a section two challenges under under the VRA. But at least what what I would hope is that based on having a both a variety of statutes as well as a variety of cases that shows the different ways that populations are affect are affected by voter ID laws, that eventually we can move past kind of the the, the knee jerk partisan reactions on both ends of the spectrum and start crafting laws that do have as, as some do as. as craft laws that have escape valves for somebody who is in a really unique situation, a really unpredictable situation, and try as they might, there really is no realistic way for them to be able to to satisfy the ordinary requirements or or, or get an identification uh, or or get the, the typical identification. Properly crafted, these, particularly if they're enacted well in advance of elections when there's enough time to comply, particularly if they are you know, somewhat liberal, so to speak, in terms of what counts as as voter, as, as valid forms of identification, they do not need to be tools of disenfranchisement. They literally can be mechanisms for ensuring efficient elections more than, more than anything else for, for reinvigorating public confidence in, in the electoral process. And I hope we continue to see the evolution of these laws in order to try to address all of the competing interests at stake. Thank you so much for that. 
Uh, Sarah, let's turn next to the Florida felon disenfranchisement law. There's an overview on Ballotopedia, which answers the question, what would a Florida amendment change about the voting rights of convicted felons? The amendment was designed to automatically restore the right to vote for people with prior felony convictions, except those convicted of murder or felony sexual offense. Tell us about Amendment 4 in Florida and how it would change the voting rights of convicted felons and what the legal challenges are. Yep, so this is Florida Amendment 4. Currently in Florida law, Florida is one of four states where convicted felons do not regain the right to vote until and unless a state officer or board restores an individual's voting rights. So they have to petition for their voting rights to be restored. Um, We saw that this was part of the original Florida Constitution, amended in 1968. Um, That's active still today in 2018. Um, we saw a U.S. District Court judge, Mark Walker, rule that Florida's process for the restoration of voting abilities for felons was unconstitutional, stating that it did violate the First Amendment and the 14th Amendment. So we'll see what happens here. Governor Scott announced that he would appeal the ruling to the 11th Circuit, and the 11th Circuit did concur with Governor Scott's request. So we're see in the courts, the amendment stands in the Constitution, but this Florida Amendment 4, depending on what happens on November 6, could could be adjusted. Many thanks for that great overview. Fernita, what are the constitutional arguments for and against felon disenfranchisement laws? So um, felon disenfranchisement, uh, the Supreme Court in a case called Richardson versus Ramirez um, found that a state could disenfranchise their felons consistent with Section 1 of the 14th Amendment or the Equal Protection Clause, in part because Section 2 of the 14th Amendment has an exemption for um, felon disenfranchisement, uh, an exemption with respect to applying the penalty of reduced representation to those states that abridge the right to vote. And so the, the, the Supreme Court reasoned that because Section 2 exempted felon disenfranchisement from the reach of its provisions, then um, therefore felon disenfranchisement did not violate Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. Um, so that's generally the legal argument for felon disenfranchisement laws. Um, but of course, the response is, uh, there are actually many responses one can make. So one thing is that it has a, a they're racially discriminatory, uh, both in purpose and effect. So um, around the turn of the century, uh, I, I forget that this is in the 2000s, so I guess that would be the turn of the last century. <laughs> <laughs> it's been um, a while. Right, it's been a while. Um, so uh, let's just say the 18, 1880s, 1890s, uh, many states adopted uh, felon disenfranchisement laws in order to prevent their black populations from being able to cast a ballot. And so um, the the Supreme Court in a case called Hunter versus um because Hunter versus Underwood uh, actually struck down Alabama's felon disenfranchisement law because it was enacted with racially discriminatory purpose. Because during their constitutional convention for their state constitution, there were actually comments made that the law was adopted in order to further racial discrimination. Um, but for for most states, you don't have those you know smoking gun statements where you have legislators uh, making comments that they are trying to you know, disenfranchise African-Americans. Now, Florida's law did have the effect of disenfranchising a substantial portion of, of African-Americans within the state. And also the, the process used to restore uh, voting rights was very ad hoc and arbitrary. So individuals would have to go before the, the governor and 
um, two other cabinet officials, usually the attorney general, and I forget the, the third official, in order to sort of make their case that their their uh, voting rights could be restored. And the, the committee could deny you for any reason. Um, and so really there was no systematic way to get your rights restored. Um, and uh, Florida Amendment 4 seeks to change that by just doing automatic restoration, which will um, probably have the effect of changing the political landscape of the state. Um, so, it, so it is remarkable in that sense. But uh, but but generally speaking, felon disenfranchisement laws, unless you prove that they are enacted with discriminatory purpose, as in the case of Alabama, it's very difficult to lodge a constitutional challenge against them. Um, there have been some successful cases under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act because um, two uh, court of appeals found that the, the laws had a racially discriminatory effect. But generally speaking, those cases are rare as well. Many thanks for that. Michael, your thoughts on the constitutional challenges to felon disenfranchisement laws, the likelihood of success, and and your thoughts about laws like uh, Florida's Amendment 4, which seek to restore the voting rights of felons. I, I agree with Frenita that from a, con- from a constitutional perspective, the fact that Section 2 of the 14th Amendment expressly contemplates the possibility of states not extending the right to vote to uh, people convicted of crimes makes most types of 14th Amendment challenges, forecloses the possibility really of of any types of 14th Amendment challenges other than ones based on intentional racial discrimination. That it, given that the Constitution's plain text expressly contemplates the possibility of not extending the right to vote to, to people convicted of crimes, it's very difficult to try to say the very same amendment also makes it per se unconstitutional. So to the extent there is evidence of intentional racial animus behind uh, felon disenfranchisement provisions, then as with any provision of law, it would be unconstitutional. One of the points that the 11th Circuit made when it upheld the constitutionality of of Florida's provision was that Florida's felon disenfranchisement provision, the court held, was not motivated by any form of racial animus. And one of the considerations that the court took into account is the fact that uh, the Florida constitution either authorized uh, felon disenfranchisement or provided for felon disenfranchisement prior to the 1860s before the state had even extended the franchise to African-Americans. And so the, the the, the court held it would literally be impossible for the felon for the uh, predecessors of the felon disenfranchisement provision to have been motivated by any sort of racial animus because the franchise had already been uh, limited on racially dis- racially discriminatory grounds. Thanks so much for that, Sarah. Our next topic, and it's a big one, is gerrymandering. In the Gill and Whitford case last year, the Supreme Court refused to rule on the merits of whether partisan gerrymandering might violate the First Amendment to the Constitution, among other provisions. In light of Gill, there's been a lot of lower court activities, including in late August in North Carolina, where the district court ruled that the state's gerrymandered districts were unconstitutional. Tell us about the state of the play uh, in North Carolina Michigan, Pennsylvania, and elsewhere, and what are the pending challenges to gerrymandering? Yep, so I'll let Michael and Fernita talk a little bit about those court cases, but what we're looking at at Ballopedia specifically is what's going to happen in 2019 with redistricting. So if you allow me to give you you a little bit of background on the different state-by-state redistricting procedures. So as of August, when some of these court cases were being ruled, 
Congressional redistricting was in the province of state legislatures in 37 states. Um, so we saw in four states there were independent commissions, which I think some of these court cases revolve around the legality of what the independent commission does and, and who's in charge of appointing these commissioners. Um, in two states, it fell to political commissions and gubernatorial appointments and things like that. And then the remaining seven states are some of the states that only have the one congressional district, so that kind of nullifies the need for a redistricting commission for the congressional level. So one thing we're noticing is you look at the National Democratic Redistricting Commission, this political group that has come out, I believe, from Eric Holder in 2018, fundraising specifically for state legislative elections. We're so excited at Ballotpedia because these state legislative elections often don't get their due, but this year they are. And what we've been tracking are trifectas, meaning one partisan party is in charge of both the governor's mansion and the full legislature, both the state house and the state senate. And what that could mean for these redistricting cases, these gerrymandering cases in 2019 and beyond. So when you look at trifectas, you see that 27 states are Republican trifectas. Again, that, that means that Republicans have a hold on those state governments in those 26 states. Only eight states are Democratic trifectas, and 16 states are under divided government. So if you remember, I mentioned that in 37 states, um, the state legislature controls this. So this is a big deal, whether or not these states will still have this trifecta status heading out of 2018, because we could see some of these court cases being vacated if Democrats pull back some of these legislatures in these states, if there is a quote-unquote blue wave next week. Um, but that's what we're focusing on right now is, all right, so we have some of these cases making their way up. We've seen a lot of them get ruled on in the past couple of years. But what happens if Democrats do have this blue wave, some of these trifectas are broken up, who will be in charge of this next census, which is going to be a very big issue. I'm based out of Maryland, and the likelihood of Larry Hogan getting reelected is not great for Democrats because of how redistricting is set up in Maryland. These state elections really, really matter this year because this next census and this next round of redistricting will happen in the next four years. So that's one thing we're tracking here, but I'll turn it back over to the panelists for more on the, the court cases involved. Thanks very much for that. Thanks for giving us a breakdown of the states where one party controls both the governorship and the state legislature. And for Nita, now let's turn to the constitutional challenges. Describe what Gillen Whitford held and didn't hold. And in light of Gillen Whitford, what are lower courts holding when confronted with challenges to partisan gerrymanders? And are they likely to succeed or not? So uh, Gill versus Whitford, uh, the, 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 the court found that the, the plaintiffs didn't have standing uh, to challenge the gerrymander in Wisconsin, in part because they tried to use uh, evidence of, of sort of statewide bias, uh, and trying to prove that they were individually harmed. Um, and so they didn't have uh, a stand-in because they couldn't prove an injury based on the evidence that they used. Um, so the interesting thing about Gill, though, is, for at least for me, is less the majority opinion and more Justice Kagan's uh, uh, opinion because uh, what she does there is she tries to lay out a, a plan forward. 
Now, I was one of the people who, prior to the decision, thought that um, the court would find that partisan gerrymandering claims were non-justiciable. I just, you know, and, and maybe I shouldn't be in the business of making predictions. I, I, I concede that. But I did think that they were going to find that they were non-justiciable. So it's really interesting that Justice Kagan lays out this this map for trying to bring this type of claim that tries to overcome some of the hurdles that the plaintiffs have with respect to the evidence that they wanted to that they tried to rely on in order to establish their claim. So uh, she frames it as a First Amendment issue. So it, it sort of harkens back to Justice Kennedy's opinion in the Veith case, where he suggested that the First Amendment might be a better vehicle to challenge a partisan gerrymander, but she does it in a different way. Um, she outlines it as a form of vote dilution. That um, So a plaintiff will be able to show that their uh, right of association is impacted by the cracking and packing that goes on um, in any given uh, gerrymandered plan. And so uh, what she's doing, so even though the majority kicks it on standing, I think that litigants can sort of look to Justice Kagan's opinion as a, a roadmap for litigating these cases going forward. Thanks so much for that. Michael, your thought about the roadmap moving forward, do you imagine that the court with Justice Kavanaugh might be sympathetic on the merits to the argument that Justice Kagan spelled out in her opinion or not? And how does that impact the cases that are bubbling up? I would be surprised if the Supreme Court were to, or if a majority of the court were to accept Justice Kagan's invitation. And in part, I would trace this reluctance back to the Chief Justice. Any or at least most forms of political gerrymandering claims are typically are based on the premise that through expert testimony, in particular through political science testimony, courts can find as constitutional facts how voters are likely to vote in particular elections under different sets of circumstances years into the future and are, and are, and are, and are able to predict the outcomes of uh, particular redistricting schemes with sufficient certainty that they can declare certain schemes unconstitutional or not. I, I, I don't remember if the if if the chief justice uh, referred to this as argle bargle or gobbledygook. These the, these are highly technical terms that 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 sometimes are used to be interchangeably. Argle bargle was Justice Scalia, wasn't it? Ah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> gobbledygook was the chief. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and so the 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 chief has has expressed a skepticism through through whichever <laughs> through, through which, whichever technical term he employed has expressed a skepticism about relying on this type of 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 social science data in this context and I think the the, the 2016 election and in particular right for those people who were following the famous needle on election night I, I I think the outcome of the 2016 election simply reaffirms the propriety of at least a degree of skepticism in the notion that courts are institutionally capable of sorting through this this type of testimony, looking into the future. And I'll also add, by the way, to a certain extent, m many types of political gerrymandering claims view voters, require courts to treat voters as fungible, interchangeable automatons that no, essentially no matter who the candidates are, no matter what the issues are, no matter how the districts are drawn, that they're going to reliably vote Democrat or Republican. And particularly in states that don't have party registration, where you don't even have where you don't even have the hint, so to speak, of people who have chosen 
chosen to register as Democrats, who've chosen to register as Republicans. And of course, we know many of those people uh, sometimes split their tickets, don't necessarily vote vote straight party lines. I think it puts it puts courts in very difficult institutional positions that if that if courts do feel they have this power to 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 look into the future, it it it, it somewhat calls into the question: Well, why are we going through through this electoral process at all? I think if you look at First Amendment case law, if you look at the what the Supreme Court has said about the importance why political parties have a fundamental First Amendment right to pick their standard bearer, why candidates have a and other uh, political involved entities have a First Amendment right to spend unlimited amounts of money on independent expenditures, on political advertisements, on political communications. The notion is it's because all of this matters. It's because many people's votes are going to hinge on who the candidates are, what the issues are, what what the debates are. And a lot of that tends to get abstracted away in uh, in the context of most of these uh, theories underlying political gerrymandering claims. Thank you so much for that. Sarah, we are at our last broad set of cases on the Ballotpedia election policy page. Uh, You identify uh, redistricting laws, voter ID laws, and then there's a category for early voting and absentee voting laws, and and you helpfully spell those out state by state. Tell us about the early voting and absentee voting laws and what some of the legal controversies arising them are. Yeah, so we have, uh, we just did a big project that we're doing in our uh, daily morning newsletter just for each voter in each state, outlining when they can go to the polls, what their early voting looks like. Again, there's some overlap here with some of the policy related to voter ID, but we have seen the majority of the country has already been able to go to the polls if they want to. So this year, seven states began their early voting periods in September, so we've already had now a month, over a month of voters in Illinois, Minnesota, New Jersey, North Dakota, South Dakota, Vermont, and Wyoming have the ability to go to the polls starting in September. Another 24 states began in October, and then there are 13 states who do not have any sort of early voting. And those are spread across the country. It's not just, you know, one geographic area or another. It's states like, it's every state from New York to I think New Hampshire and down there are a few Alabama and Mississippi. Um, so we have seen, it, depending on where you are in the country, it definitely varies by your, your locality and your state. But a good chunk of the, the country has already started voting if they would want. Um, and, of course, there are the Washington, Oregon, and Colorado who they only vote via mail-in ballots. So those are things we track. And if you have questions about how to vote in your state, please please head to ballotpedia.org, but um, those are mainly controlled by, similarly to redistricting, those types of laws are mainly controlled by the legislature. So, again, 2018 could have a dramatic effect on what that early voting map looks like for 2020 and beyond, Um, and, and that will likely be an issue as we start talking about presidential on November 7th. <laughs> so that's, that's one thing we'll be tracking over here. Michael, there was some controversy over Ohio in the last cycle. Uh, uh, Tell us what you can about the legal framework for early voting and absentee voting challenges. The the major challenge that I was aware of with regard to absentee voting was a procedural due process challenge with regard to signature match. That with 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 regard to absentee voting, obviously the whole point of it is that you're not showing up. You're 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 doing it. You typically by mail. 
And in order to make sure that ballots are being submitted by the voters who claim to be submitting them, the the main safeguard that many states uh, implement is signature match, where you are after you after the voter you request your absentee ballot, the ballot comes back, you fill out the ballot, selecting the candidates that you want. After you put the ballot back in the envelope, you then have to sign sign the envelope across the seal. And then when the ballots are submitted to election officials, they compare the signature to the signature they have on record, potentially even from many, many years ago when you had a first registered to vote or if you did it through Motor Voter when you got your got your driver's license. And if the, if, if either someone forgets to sign the the absentee ballot, or if the signatures do not appear to match, that 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 if it looks like there's the the signature might not have been from the the, the person who had filled out the registration form, that there's the, that there's some kind of concern about potential fraud. That under the signature match laws, the absentee ballot then uh, does not get counted. And so uh, in Georgia, a court, a, a federal court entered a, a restraining order against enforcement of the the signature match statute and I know in uh, in in many states and as the absentee ballot uh, re- re- results are, are are coming in there is concern about the application of these signature match laws uh, because in depending on state law voters might not even necessarily know that their that their uh, vote isn't being counted that their vote has been rejected due to uh, either they forgot to sign the ballot or the signatures didn't match. Thank you for that. Fernita, I think we're going to give the last word to you in light of the arguments that Michael has described for challenges to previous voter ID and signature law matches. What do you make of those arguments and, and do you find them persuasive or not? So I, so I get larger concerns about sort of making sure that people are who they are by matching the signatures. But I think especially, you know, all of this is happening in a context where there's broad disenfranchisement in Georgia. Right. So not only did we have the signature match, which was challenged and, and stopped and then he, the, the secretary of, of state, who's also running for governor, reinstituted it. Um, but he's also purged um, 300,000 plus voters. So. Um, it's, it's, it really is the combination of things, right? So the signature match combined with the voter purges um, really does have the effect of disenfranchising a, a substantial portion of voters in Georgia in a way that I think um, raises significant concerns. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a good thing that, you know, voting rights advocates are being vigilant about, you know, sort of watching what's going on there and consistently filing lawsuits because the secretary of state's willingness to reimpose signature match, even after um, a, a federal court told him not to do it, sort of shows um, his dedication to making sure that everyone cannot vote. Thank you so much for that. Well, it's time to close, but we, the people listeners, I want to end by encouraging you to continue to educate yourself about the constitutional arguments surrounding voting rights. Begin with Fernita and Michael's wonderful joint explainer on the Elections Clause. Also read Michael's joint explainer on the 26th Amendment, which changed the voting age to 18, as well as the provisions on the 15th Amendment, joint explainers involving racial discrimination in voting. As always, the best way to be An engaged citizen is to educate yourself about the Constitution. The interactive Constitution is the best place to begin, and we're so grateful to our partners at Ballotpedia for helping us sponsor this constitutional exploration of the right to vote. Sarah Rosier, 
Frenita Tolson, and Michael Morley. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Greg Shackler and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Jackie McDermott. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to We the People wherever you listen and tune into our companion podcast, Live in America's Town Hall. We release those episodes on Tuesday, and those are the audio for our great public programs here in Philadelphia and around the country, which are so important in spreading constitutional light. If you'd like to keep up with the Constitution Center through your inbox, please sign up for our email newsletter, Constitution Weekly, at bit.ly forward slash Constitution Weekly. It's a compilation of all of our content, the videos, the podcasts, selections from the interactive Constitution, a veritable constitutional feast, or as Tocqueville called it, a gratuitous public school. So we the people listeners, would be great if you signed up. And of course, as you know, I want you so much to sign up and become a member of the National Constitution Center to support our crucial work in increasing awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. You're such great ambassadors for us, and I want you to join us as part of our common crusade. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.